Social justice printmaker Justine Fisher has a BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute and an MFA from Cranbrook Academy of Art. Her social memorials feature unjust events invoking unarmed black men, women, and boys, including the Charleston Nine, Terrence Crutcher, Sandra Bland, Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, William Wingate, Jordan Davis, and Trayvon Martin. Fisher's work has been featured in the San Francisco Examiner, the Washington Post, and many other publications. She's here tonight to discuss her award-winning print, Birth of a Nation, which depicts a dark side of American history and how it shaped us as a nation. I'm pleased to say that this work is now part of the Athenaeum's permanent collection and on view in the first floor long room. We hope we will be able to reopen the building soon so you can come see it in person. Please join me now without further ado in welcoming Justine Fisher. Welcome, Justine. Thank you, Jenny. Um, I really appreciate you hosting this event and for adding my work to your permanent collection. I also want to thank everyone who is here tonight um, for joining us. These are seriously crazy times that we're living in, and it means a lot that you can take the time um, to be here to carve out that time in your busy schedules, since nothing is normal anymore. So. <clears throat> The piece that I'm going to be talking about tonight is titled Birth of a Nation. It was created in 2019. And it's what we in the print community call a printstallation. It's an installation of prints. Um, to describe it physically, it is a layered woodcut. So it is a woodcut that's hand painted and stretched. Then there's a veil that overlays the stretched piece. Now, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this piece on how I came up with the idea to create it, what inspired me. Um, and to do that, I need to show you some of my previous work. I'm also going to show you what inspires me, what my influences are, and um, basically how I create these, my process. So initially, what I was responding to was um, a comment by a passerby. My studio is basically a glass box and about pre-COVID times, over a thousand, 2000 people will pass by every day because there's a lot of military people and government people who walk by. So one evening um, I was feeling loose. I was having some drinks working in my studio and a woman walked in and she looked at all the pieces and she said, you know, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. And, um, you know, why are you defending criminals? And why are you focusing on black on black crime? You know, y'all kill each other more than police do. Your work should focus on that. And those of you artists out there know that feeling when <laughs> there's always somebody out there who wants to tell you what your art should be or what you should be doing. So um, let me give you some background on the previous pieces, the pieces that she was responding to. Since 2014, I have considered myself a social justice artist. Um, art is my activism. And instead of being out there in the streets protesting, I choose to use my imagery as a form of my visual protest. So I call these pieces social memorials. I'm not gonna spend too much time talking about them. I just want you to see them so that you can see what she was responding to or what she was really reacting to. This piece is called The Sunshine State. In all of these pieces, I include the state flower as a form of memorial. I also include a banner that includes the names of the victims. This was created in 2014. This is called Two Seconds because that's the amount of time it took the officer to shoot and kill Tamir Rice, who was playing with a toy gun. This is the only incident where the victim was not killed. He was jailed overnight for using a golf club as a cane. 
His name was William, is William Wingate. Uh, this is titled Lucy Law, and this is about Eric Gardner, who was um, selling loose cigarettes on the street and was choked to death for that misdemeanor crime. This is Freddie Gray. This is titled Rough Ride because his spinal cord was nearly severed in a rough ride that he received from officers who were later honored on the stage at the Republican National Convention for being acquitted. This is Walter Scott. The title of this piece is Traffic Target. He was shot in the back while running away from an officer after the officer whispered something in his ear. The officer did not know he was being captured on camera. This is Sandra Bland and the title of this piece is Suspicious Suicide because <clears throat> there's really no way she would have had access to a plastic bag which she allegedly hung herself from in her jail cell. Video footage shows police officers going in and out of her cell for at least an hour wearing gloves. My guess is that she was roughed around and killed in a chokehold and then they staged a hanging. This is Laquan McDonald. He was shot 16 times in 13 seconds in Chicago. This officer is the only officer in all these cases that was actually convicted and is serving time only because of Rahm Emanuel. Um, this piece is called Nine Lives, No Reason. And it's about the nine victims that were killed, slaughtered after welcoming Dylan Roof into their church for Bible study. And this is called No Help in Oklahoma. It's about Terrence Crutcher. His car broke down, he needed help. Instead of receiving help, he was executed. The officer who shot him um, said she believed she was reaching for her taser, which is very interesting. Um, but I do wanna point out when I create all of these pieces, it's very important to me that I am honoring the victim without exploiting them. And I am deeply concerned by that. And I think about that a lot. And I'm always concerned, well, what would the family member think if they saw these pieces? And I got my answer on this piece. Um, Terrence Crutcher was a twin and his twin Tiffany Crutcher follows me on Instagram and she reached out to me with a personal message and she thanked me for creating this piece in honor of her brother. And that meant a lot to me because I deliberately made him larger than life to make him appear kind of King Kong size um, to show that many officers, many white people view large black men as monsters. So my inspiration and the style of these pieces comes from Russian propaganda posters, which I'm highly influenced by. Um, the WPA works specifically Charles Terzak. I love his aesthetic. I love his carving style. His work is so powerful. His compositions are phenomenal. And I'm inspired by the sentiment behind rest in peace murals, which you see a lot in California, Los Angeles, and Oakland area. And I borrowed the banner from these pieces, which I use in my social memorials. So my process and materials, um, when I come up with the idea, I make an initial sketch, um, then I reverse the sketch, and then I enlarge it four times on masonite, which is painted black. I carve into it using carving tools and ink it up by hand and print it all by hand. So the barren that you see is what I'm rubbing the print with. So here's an example of me pulling a print of the venation. It's funny, an acquaintance of mine saw this video and he's like, man, do you need an assistant? I was like the whole time, geez, 
he's like, it's nerve wracking watching you pull that. And yes, I do need an assistant. I wish I had an assistant, but unfortunately I do not. So um, it takes about, it can take up to two weeks. There you can see people walking by. So when I'm working, people walk by, they'll press their face up against the glass. You know, it's like you're in a fishbowl. Um, so when my piece is dry, I put a fan on it. And when I saw the movement of the piece, I was really inspired by that. And I said, you know, I really want to figure out a way to have movement in this piece. Um, and so I experimented with that. And in the original version of this piece, um, the show that it was in at Gallery O on H Street, people were encouraged to tap the pipe to get the Klansmen to march. So this is me experimenting with the layering the distance of the veil to the um, stretched piece and how hard someone should tap on the pipe to make the Klansmen march. It's a little dizzying at times. So coming back to this quote, um, what about black on black crime? My response to her, and I, I listened to everything she had to say because I was very interested and um, I wanted to give her a real answer. So after I heard everything she said, which included, why are y'all killing each other all the time? And when you guys start looting and rioting, why do you burn up your own communities? <laughs> and I, I reminded her, I said, first of all, I am not the spokesperson for the entire black community. Well, I know that, but, and I said, well, let's talk about slavery. And she said, oh, here we go. Why do you people always, she didn't say you people, but she said, why do black people always wanna talk about slavery? Slavery is over. <laughs> and I said, well, is it? So I, you know, directed her towards this quote, slavery has never been abolished from America's way of thinking. This is a true statement and Many people don't see it. Many people will never see it. But this is something that I've become more and more aware of in my later years. So um, back to this piece. There's a lot going on in this piece. And compositionally, I knew I wanted to make an elongated composition. I was thinking about Chinese scroll paintings and how in almost all Chinese scroll paintings, you expect to see mountains in the distance at the top of the composition. And I knew I wanted the Klansmen to form mountains. And I knew I was successful when I was working on this piece and I texted it to my sister and she said, what's up with the mountains? There's no mountains in DC. And I was like, no, look closer. And she was like, oh. So I was like, oh, my evil plan worked. So um, I was thinking about Chinese scroll paintings and then I was thinking about all of the things that I wanted to include in this composition. So to just kind of list everything that we're seeing here, I was thinking of the concept of blackness as evil and black men or a black man being depicted as the devil choking a disembodied head of another black man. A gun is deliberately floating with no one holding it because it's meant to imply, is it another black man holding the gun? Is it the police holding the gun? Does it just represent violence in general? Um, the chain represents the chains of slavery, which we see in police practices, which originated from slave patrols. The city is meant to represent an inner city that is burning um, because we all burn down our communities when we start looting. Um, so that was you know, a nod to her comment in regards to that. And then I knew I wanted to show men or silhouettes of men fighting in the streets. Um, it's really interesting because someone else came up and they said, oh, are you trying to form swastikas with the bodies? And I said, no, but that would have been a really good idea. Um, and then I wanted to show our prison system in the background there with men being depicted as shadow figures in our pr prison. So as they're fighting in the streets, they're rapidly becoming shadow figures in our prisons. 
um, the scales of justice are deliberately level and equal to represent that there is not equity in our justice system and that there are two different justice systems, depending on what you look like. Um, and then the judge's gavel is down because that represents, you know, the decision is already made once they walk through the door. And the Klansmen themselves, I wanted them to resemble mountains, you know, grand and carved into the landscape, um, not hidden or part, you know, of a long forgotten practice, but ingrained, immovable, and established. So the bottom of the piece is finished off with a cross stitch. And I deliberately used the red embroidery floss and that cross stitch to kind of mirror the cross in the Confederate flag. And I was also thinking about stitching a flag, creating, so years back I saw um, an exhibition at the, I wanna say it was the Anacostia Museum and it was men who make quilts. And I was thinking about well, who made the first Confederate flag? Was it someone's granny? Was it a soldier? Someone had to sit down and stitch this flag together. So that was the decision for um, adding that cross stitch. Now the pipe that the piece hangs from is another deliberate choice because I was thinking about pipe bombs that are used to blow up black churches and to terrorize the black community. So everything was very carefully considered. Um, I was trying to compose something that was powerful, not overwhelming. Um, so there's so I'm trying to include in, in this piece. And I was also thinking about just systematic racism in general um, and exploring the roots. So when the devil's advocate woman said, oh, why do you always want to talk about slavery? And I said, it's something that really needs to be talked about. Uh, my education growing up, um, I don't remember much of anything being taught about slavery other than it happened. Um, so I kind of see my research in this piece and other pieces that I plan on making as a way of reclaiming my education of history. So here's the definition by uh, the Wellesley Institute provided by the UK government. So systematic racism, the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin. Then we can look at implicit bias and structural racism. So this is provided by the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. First of all, I wanna start out as a teacher. Um, let's see, there are certain people that I encounter where if I say structural racism or I say implicit bias, oh, okay, well, you, that doesn't exist. So there's a lot of people and I'm talking nearly half the country that truly believe that this does not exist. Um, so voting rights, FHA loans, residential segregation, access to education, all of those things um, are highly affected by this implicit bias and structural racism. So since I'm a teacher and I encourage my students to make mind maps, I'm gonna show you my mind map that I made for um, this new series. So we start with systematic racism and the 13th amendment, Jim Crow laws, reconstruction versus redemption, which by the way, I didn't know anything about redemption until my adult years. This was not taught to me in school whatsoever. I'm not sure if they're teaching it now. I hope they are. I hope my nieces are learning about redemption. Maybe they're too young at this point, but I hope at some point it's brought up. Uh, sundown towns, which I encountered when I was in college, not fun. Redlining. The Yale study of racial bias in preschool teachers. Police practices originating from slave patrols. And 
to top it all off racial discrimination and face recognition technology, which is a real thing. So um, I'm gonna focus just briefly on what we see on the left because it feeds everything else. So, you know, um, abolishing slavery happened. However, if freed slaves broke any of the black codes, then boom, they're instantly locked up again. They're a slave again, okay? And freed slaves could break these black codes for doing the tiniest thing or nothing at all, okay? It just depends on who's accusing them. Then they go before a judge that's extremely racist. And then guess what? They're a slave again. Um, Jim Crow laws, you know, that's just legalized segregation. And then I want to talk a little bit about reconstruction because that's really where all of the problems that we're seeing still today come from. The fear of black power. So um, I was very, I, I'm a true believer that everything is connected and that you need to keep your eyes open for signs and things out there. And I saw this book on the shelves at the Boston Athenaeum. Um, and I immediately ordered it from Amazon. So Paul Finkelman's Supreme Injustice was right up there on the shelf on display um, before you go into the long gallery. And it highlights basically the success of black politicians um, during reconstruction, which prompted redemption. So these two gentlemen, um, Alonzo Ranzier defeated an ex-Confederate general to become South Carolina's first black lieutenant governor in 1870. Never knew that. And then Joseph Hain Rainey became the first black state representative in Congress and he was elected to fill a vacant South Carolina seat in 1870 became the longest serving African-American during reconstruction. So once this happened and you know, more than 2000 black office holders would be elected during reconstruction. <laughs> uh, racist white southerners had it. They were like, okay, no, 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 no. Um, this can't happen. So they shut it down. Um, none of this was taught to me in school. I think there's a great benefit to teaching black children about their true history and it shouldn't be seen as unpatriotic or negative or indoctrination, which is what a lot of people want to call it. Um, so in by 1901, um, Southern efforts to disenfranchise black men had been extremely effective and no African-American would represent a Southern state in Congress again for more than 70 years. So, you know, white supremacists feared black Republican domination. Um, so many black office holders were Republicans were holding office and formed a public school system or doing positive things, but that showed that blacks were not staying in their place, right? Their rightful place, which is in the cornfield. Um, so, you know, combine that with three Supreme Court justices who struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and that were uh, hearing cases about back pay and freedom and were just denying and ignoring. So my piece was inspired as well by D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, Birth of a Nation. It was the first film to be shown in the White House by Woodrow Wilson, who was a known racist and KKK sympathizer. Um, this photo just floors me because <laughs> I'm, I'm not thinking about these guys. I am thinking about the people on the sidelines, like the people who are watching this, were they like, yeah, or were they like, what the hell? <laughs> or were they like, I need to move out of town. I would love to know what they were thinking, um, but obviously, you know, all of these tactics, these parades, the, the hood, all of that is meant to intimidate um, the same way that Confederate statues were erected to intimidate and to remind Blacks of their place in society and in the country as a whole. 
Um, on Wednesday, January 6th, the Klan drove down my street. And I know this not because I saw them. I wish I would have seen them, but my partner came in and he said, uh, white pickup truck just drove by. It was the Klan. They had their flags. And I was like, oh, hell, <laughs> here we go. So the day of the insurrection, the Klan was like, let's drive down Independence Avenue. And that's what they did. Um, so Woodrow Wilson called black people an ignorant and inferior race. This is a quote from the film. The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until the last, until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country. So patriotism, I love my country, all of those things. When you hear that now, that is code for, I am a white supremacist, not for everyone, but for many people that say this. So we have to think about this hate. Um, we know where it comes from. It comes from fear. It doesn't necessarily come from ignorance because there are highly educated people who have these beliefs. Um, it's real. It doesn't disappear, but it just takes on new forms. So let's look at 2017, Unite the Right. Um, interesting story. So I read an article about these guys, the Proud Boys and the Oath seek Taker Seekers, whatever they're called. Um, somebody took a screenshot of messages they were sending to each other and it was very important to them. They're like, be clean cut. Um, don't shave your head completely, but you know, shortcut hair, khakis and polos. So I was like, wow, I feel really sorry for you know, traditionally preppy people. They have to be, you know, cautious now. And when I had Birth of a Nation installed in my studio, you saw that there's a glass wall in my studio and pre-COVID the door was always open, right? So I see this guy walking back and forth, looking at my work, really interested in looking at, uh, you know, Birth of a Nation. Then he comes in and I had already read the articles about their new uniform, which is khakis and a polo. This guy's wearing khakis and a polo. And I was like, oh no. And he has this kind of weird grin on his face. And I turn around the corner and look at him and he's just smiling and he's staring at the piece. Doesn't say anything to me. So I was like, okay, what's going on? And my studio mate, Sandy was there and it was very awkward. And he was in there for, it seemed forever. I don't know. It could have been maybe only 10 minutes. And then he signed her book, because I guess he thought it was the book for the whole student, he walked out. So as soon as he left, I was like, oh my God. And I went and looked. And he wrote, I love the work in the studio. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Well, that answered my question. And then we have Trump's insurrection, Wednesday, January 6th. Um, I never want to be that person that said, I told you so. But as soon as Trump started, um, basically denying the truth about the election. I was talking to my neighbor um, who was white and who I'm friends with. And I said, you know, these, these uh, deniers are gonna be marching the Capitol. And he was just like, no. And this was like long before. And he was like, this was months ago. He's like, that will never happen. We live in a democracy. There's no way that will never happen. I said, dude, it's gonna happen. And he was like, oh, you're paranoid. So you're too negative. See, Justine, you're too pessimistic. And I said, I am pessimistic, yes, but it's gonna go down. And he didn't believe me. So on Wednesday the 6th, after the Klan drove down Independence, I went and knocked his door, boom, boom, boom. I said, hey, Mike. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I told you so. <laughs> he's like, I can't believe this. This is just, is just, and I said, it's happening. And it's gonna, it's gonna happen again. So, um, you know, like you, like most everyone, I was texting people, can you believe this, this? And I was like, I was personally not shocked. Sadly, I was not shocked. I was watching in horror, but not shocked at all. Um, so another colleague of mine, um, she texted back. She said, oh, don't worry. The National Guard will get them. They're going to get them. They'll all be arrested before they can even walk out of the building. <laughs> so 
when I saw them being escorted out, all gentle and kind, like, come on, y'all boys had your fun now. Now go on home. Maybe you can come back on the 20th. But you know, oh wait, you need help downstairs. Come on now. Okay, there you go. But you know, y'all had your fun in there. We'll clean up the mess. Um, so that's what we saw. It's not a good thing. Um, it's it's a crazy thing, but it kind of proves a lot of points here. Um, so the quote from the woman who came to my studio, the film Birth of a Nation, which I did not see until DJ Spooky's Rebirth of a Nation. Um, Paul Dennis Miller, a DC resident known by as DJ Spooky, has this amazing performance. I highly encourage you to watch it. I'm not sure if he's still performing it, but I did include a link to one of his performances, I believe out of New York. And what he's doing is he is spinning live tracks along with the Kronos Quartet. And he has some software he, where he's actually drawing over the film while it's happening. So if something important's happening, he'll kind of circle it and zoom it in closer. And the two most memorable parts of this film for me, well, well, first of all, the only real black actors in the film were the children. All of the adults are white people in blackface. So it shows the impetus for the Klan hood and um, basically these little black children being afraid because white children who are playing with them come out with a sheet on them and the little black children ah, run away. And then this gentleman's like, hmm, black people are not very smart. They have the intelligence of children. They'll probably be afraid of sheets too. So he hands a sheet and pillowcase to his wife. She stitches it together for him. And then on election day, which, you know, they seriously fear election day because blacks were allowed to vote. They show this actor in blackface who's shucking and jiving up to the, the ballot box and he puts in his vote and then he does a little spin around and puts in another vote and winks at the camera, right? So, cause it's like black people always cheat. They're gonna rig the elections. If a black person's elected, they cheated, right? That's what this film is saying in 1915. And that's what's being said still today, okay? This is why Georgia is trying to change their voting laws because they're not pleased with the outcome. So, Back to this piece again, um, what you see on the right is the piece without the veil. And this is really what I consider the G-rated version of this piece. The original piece includes a clan hood. And I decided I wanted to do that when I was working on the drawing itself and carving it. I love the carving process. It's extremely painful, but it's very physical. And while I was carving it, I was like, how can I make this clan hood like pop out and actually be a physical object? So I spent weeks experimenting with different materials and fabrics. I originally made one out of resin. It was too shiny, it was too heavy. And then I said, well, why don't I just try the fabric that I already print on? And I starched it with a lot of, uh, what did I, I think I used wheat paste. And my studio mate, Johnny, loved this guy from, I don't know, four or five years ago, even longer. He's like, oh, you should put lights behind your piece. And I was like, but why? And he goes, because it look cool. And I was like, well, yeah, lights are cool, but I got to have a better reason than just to make it look cool. I don't want it to be gimmicky. And he's like, oh, I want to I want to put lights in your piece. I can, I can show you how to do it. And I was always like, I couldn't really come up with a good enough justified reason. <laughs> so when I decided to make this clan head, I was like, oh, Johnny. I need lights. I want the eyes to look like fire and flames. And he was like, oh, I can do that. So he was all excited to help me. And I love Johnny because, you know, I keep trying to pay him and he won't take any payment. So we work on trade, but mostly just because he's just a really great guy. So this is the piece when it was installed at Gallery O on H Street. And that's after somebody tapped it to make the Klansmen march. And then the video on the right, you can see the LED lights that look like flames. So I wanted the flames to represent flames of hatred, but really to represent the burning crosses the Klan loved to put in people's yards and their properties to intimidate and scare people of color. 
Um, so here's another installation view and the piece in my studio. So going back to it being in my studio, um, really interesting because pre-COVID, you know, tons of people walking by. So, you know, white people walk by and they're like, and I'm like, are they saying thumbs up because, okay, I'm like, how do I read this? <laughs> they saying thumbs up because they love the Klan or because they, they understand what I'm trying to do with it. So it was interesting to see people's reactions. Um, when it was here at Gallery O, um, hold on, here we go. Let me get back to that slide again. Uh, sorry about that here. So I was standing in front of it watching people tap it. And this gentleman came up and he was staring at it and he was like, damn, damn. Do you see this? Do you see what this artist did? And I said, yeah, I, I did that. And he was like, you're the artist? And I said, yeah. And he goes, so you know we're at war. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> and this was a gentleman who's probably in his early 70s, black gentleman. And he was like, oh, sister girl, you know we're at war. And I said, well, yes, I do. <laughs> so um, let's here. go up to Okay, so this is the piece with the quote that was included from the film. The former enemies of North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. And then I just wanted to show you different variations of the piece. Um, this is when it was at Towson University and their ceilings are almost like 25 feet high. So it was installed in the wall and I thought it was really impactful, the, the dramatic shadow that it made. And they also hung it much higher because the ceilings are so tall. So it had a more ominous presence. Here it is um, in the 2019 North American Print Biennial at uh, Wellesley. Yes, was it Wellesley? Yes, I think it was. There it is, yes. And then it's also featured in um, the new book, Not Normal, Art in the Age of Trump. Um, I would not have been included in this book if it hadn't been for the wonderful Karen Goodfriend. She is the most professional, wonderful, loveliest curator I have ever had the pleasure to work with. Um, highly organized. She's also a Virgo like me, and she's just a phenomenal person. Um, so I do want to share this little clip about her book. around the United States and the world are raging against Donald Trump in a visual protest. Not normal art in the age of Trump documents this artistic movement. The outrage is evidenced by the outpouring of art on subjects ranging from racism, the COVID pandemic, promotion of hatred and violence, mistrust of science and facts, misogyny, and of course, a narcissism that puts our entire country and world at great risk. I created this collection because the subject matters portrayed in the works are timely, necessary, and urgently needed to be seen in this fake news and alternative facts world. My objective is to bring people into conversation about the current, not normal, state of affairs in the age of Trump. This artwork brings to life the First Amendment and full technicolor display. Art and activism is on the rise and protest is patriotic. So I apologize about the shameless plug, but I have to promote her because she's wonderful. And I encourage you all to purchase that book from Amazon. Um, so here's the um, installed piece, the G-rated version, but still just as lovely, I think. Um, you'll notice it's hung a little closer as well. So, um, but you still get that 3D double layered image effect. And then here's another shot of it here where you can see it at an angle. 
and we end with sirens. <laughs> Yay! Um, I included my sources and links here, um, and you'll see halfway down, um, there's a link to DJ Spooky's Rebirth of a Nation. So that's all I have for you folks. Um, thank you so much for listening. I hope it was entertaining. <laughs> Wonderful. Justine, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say about your work and, and the context. Um, for our visitors, if you have um, if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the Q&A section here. I'll go ahead and get us started. Justine, since you mentioned DJ Spooky um, and Rebirth of a Nation, um, I couldn't help but make a connection between the kinetic aspect of your birth of a nation and the fact that it's being inspired by um, both DJ Spooky's Rebirth of a Nation and then also the Griffith film, um, Birth of a Nation. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that and if you, um, if, if that's something that a connection that you were making as you were thinking about how to translate um, sort of film as an art form into um, uh, a, a Princellation, which is a term I didn't know about. And I think that's just brilliant. So. Yeah, it's not a real term. It's just something printmakers use kind of as a joke. Um, but I wasn't thinking about any deliberate connections other than the content. Um, I think it's, it's challenging making static work that is meant to be flat on a wall. So like I said before, when I was watching the piece drying and moving, I was like, oh, how can I have that permanently in the piece? Um, I tried having a fan on it, you know, it didn't work because it's like, it has to move this way and the fan was making it move this way. But um, I was also extremely moved by, when I was at the Kennedy Center for Rebirth of a Nation, it was a sold out show I was so happy that my friend Marielle told me about it, um, but I was extremely moved by the audience because I saw so many young children with their parents and I saw their parents and these were white children, black children, all different races. And their parents were like explaining the context saying, this was a film that was shown in the White House. This, and they were like, you need to be quiet. You need to stay still. I want you to pay attention and I want you to have questions afterwards. And I was like, this is phenomenal. Like I would have loved to have been shown something like that as a child because these kids are growing up with their eyes open and, and seeing history that is not taught in schools and that most people don't see that film until college or grad school, if at all. So I don't think I answered your question, but um, no, it was no, it was a great, a great response. Um, so uh, I'll jump into some of the other questions we have. Um, so lots of praise, of course, everyone's very enthusiastic. Um, thank you for you and your work. Um, question uh, is, can you speak on the potential impact of your work being at the BA? as well as what it means to you personally for it to be in a collection and the wall text that you offered for interpretation? Um, well, I was really happy to have the feedback from you about the wall text because um, I feel like it's good to have another voice to help guide the text because text as well, words can be very easily misinterpreted taken out of context, offensive, all of those things. Um, so it was great to have your guidance, but um, one of my main goals, and I talked to my students about this because I have them set goals and they're like, well, what are your goals? And I said, well, I wanna be published in a book. I wanna be in a permanent collection. And they're like, what happens when you meet those goals? And I'm like, and I set new goals. Right, right. And they're like, well, can't you just stop? And I'm like, no, <laughs> they're like, so uh, it's really important to me that it's in a permanent collection. It's really important to me that people are going to see it. Um, I know that it's not going to appeal to everyone. I know that it, people are going to be offended by it naturally. And I am constantly self-editing. So this mm -hmm. piece um, accepted into an exhibition 
an art teacher exhibition at the Lorton Workhouse. And it was the version with the clan hood with the lights and everything. And um, I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna pull that piece from the show. And right when I made that decision, I got an email from somebody who's just below the superintendent that said, we regret to inform you that we would like to pull your piece from the show because we are afraid that it will cause too much disruption. And, and the woman who was disturbed by it was a black woman and she thought it was pro-Klan. And I said, did she not look? I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I was like, that's fine. I was gonna pull it anyway. And they were like, oh, thank God. Cause they thought I was gonna be all, no, you're, you need to show my piece. And thought I was gonna fight for it. I was like, I'd rather not, honestly, because the audience would have been art teachers, children, their parents and it would have made the news and it would have been a nightmare for me. So um, I tend to edit myself a lot depending on who I'm talking to and depending on how strong I'm feeling that day. I think, I think a lot of black and brown people do that um, because they don't, sometimes you just are too tired to deal with expressing yourself or um, fighting, you know? So, yep. Um, so I'll, I've got another question. Um, so uh, one of our attendees uh, is asking with so many uh, media images of racial injustices, um, they're wondering how you use the woodcut woodcuts to differentiate between the media photos with the um, prevalence of photos we see in the media um, and uh, what role you see uh, sort of the black and white that's so prevalent in your work playing? Mm. Um, well, when I work from images in the media, I always try to alter them and change them to make them my own um, because, you know, I'm never going to represent something that's copywritten. So the general rule is changing that image seven times before it becomes your own. Mm -hmm. But also um, representing the images in black and white is really important because the disparities that you see and the conflict that exists around the subject, people see it as very black and white. There's very little gray. So for example, my neighbor who lives below me, he's now moved out. He's a proud boy and he's also in the National Guard. <laughs> so he was always very friendly with me and we would have conversations, but you know, he never wanted to talk to me about, well, how can I say this? Uh, I'm just aware of how a lot of people kind of live in a box or in a bubble and anything outside of that is black and they're inside of the white bubble, their purity bubble. So um, I think I use the black and white to be very stark and um, to kind of really represent the subject more clearly. And I'm really in love with line. So if you look at the pieces up close, you can see very, very fine lines. Um, and I talk to my students about this a lot. I'm like, you didn't vary your line weight. Everything has the same weight. <laughs> and so, you know, I try to vary the line weight. So it's like, there's something thicker to draw you in and then you see something very fine. And then the fabric that I print on has a moire in it, which looks like wood grain. So a lot of people are like, oh, you can see the wood grain on the fabric. I'm like, no, that's the fabric. And so they're like, oh, it's a silk screen. I'm like, no, <laughs> with silk screen, the screen is the means, not the end. And so, um, I think the medium itself is something people aren't familiar with. They know what a woodcut is, but they're not used to seeing it in this form. Mm -hmm. Well, and your your process for producing it is different too, because you're not using a printing press. You're doing it all right. by hand, right? Um, so uh, have you found uh, that your teaching practice influences your artistic practice or vice versa? Oh, it definitely does. Um, however, I don't show my work to my students and I don't talk about it very much. Um, honestly, after the insurrection, I had to turn off, um, what is it called? The student's profile images. 
because a lot of them were representing things that were not appropriate that were related to the insurrection. Mm. So as a teacher, I look at all of my students the same and I treat them equally and I try to teach them that they need to treat each other with respect. And um, so they're not allowed to talk about politics. Um, they're not allowed to talk about religion. Uh, I barely let them talk about gender because their, their minds are so easily influenced and they're so naive about a lot of things and they believe everything they see on their little phone. So, um, but yes, I definitely, you know, I encourage them. I'm like, do your research, do your Jamboard mind map, then do your, you know, sustained investigation pages. So I'm doing the same things as well, more because of what I'm teaching them. Um, so this question just popped up um, and I, it would have been a nice segue to what we were just talking about, about your, your, before your teaching practice. Um, but uh, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your choice of printing on textiles. What is it like to print on, um, on fabric instead of paper? Because the, the effect is really, is really striking. Well, I got the idea from my mother, actually. Um, so when I was in college, I was creating eight foot by four foot woodcuts on a full sheet of masonite. Um, and it was great because in college, like everybody was partying and every Friday and Saturday night, I knew I had the entire studio to myself. So I'd spend the whole week carving the block. And then on Fridays and Saturdays, I would print. And I didn't have paper that size. So when I looked up how much the paper was and it was like $300, you know, uh, I called mom and dad. I'm like, hey, I need more money. And I think, I can't remember if it was my mom and dad. They're like, are you buying drugs? And I was like, no, I need paper. And they're like, what, what are you talking? So my mom's like, just tell me what you're doing. And I said, well, I'm printing <laughs> eight foot by four foot paper, but it's gotta be bigger than that. Cause that's the size of the block. That's, you know, and. And, and then I was like, then I got to have money for a steamroller because because the school would rent a steamroller or, yeah. Um, and she was like, no, no, you're going to print on wall. And I was like, what? And she was like, okay, it's like curtain shears. She's like, I'll send you some. Don't worry about it. Try printing on it. She's like, it's really strong. So that's what I did. And I've been using it for, what, 28 years now. Um, wow. So that's, that's where that idea came from. And it's really durable. It can handle the oil-based ink. Um, so once I pull the print, I can stretch it and kind of get it back into its proper rectangle. Um, so I just love it. I've been using it forever. And, and it, I have pieces that are almost 30 years old that have held up. So, you know, I wouldn't say that polyester is the most archival, uh, <laughs> you know, material, but that's what I'm using because I've tried, everyone's like, oh, you should use silk. Well, I tried silk and it's like, Bleh! you know, once the ink's on it and cotton does the same thing. Uh, so we, we have a related question um, from a fellow printmaker who wants to, um, who's just wondering uh, why you use masonite versus something else um, like linoleum or wood as your mason or as your matrix because masonite is such a, a hard material to work with. Actually, masonite is not for me. Um, I started trying to carve in birch when I was in college and it's terrible. It's expensive, it splinters. And the imagery that I was doing in college was very curved and lyrical. And every time I would carve, it was like splinter, 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 terrible. And my um, professor at the time, she was like, what are you doing? Use masonite. And I was like, oh. And so I bought that and it's like, cuts like butter. Um, smooth, easy to carve. Linoleum is terrible. I hate it. It's so, you have to heat it up. Um, there's something now called Blick Gray Linoleum, so soft linoleum. That's what my students use, but Masonite allows me to get super fine details. It doesn't splinter and it's perfect for me. So that's the only downside is that over the past 28 years, it's degraded because all companies try to make their products more cheaply and mass produced. So they're using a different glue in it that dulls my Japanese tools. So I stopped using my Japanese tools altogether and I use FlexCut, which are like a 16th of the price of Japanese tools and I can sharpen and hone them myself. And it's like this bendable steel and the handle's thicker. So my carpal tunnel is not as aggravated because I have a thicker handle to hold on to. But 
I don't know why people think masonite is hard to carve, but for me, it's super easy. I can carve very fast. Great. So we have many more questions and we're going to be able to answer tonight. Um, but I will we'll try to combine a couple of questions in my last one to you. So um, we had a, a, a visitor ask about um, if you have done or are planning to do um, piece for Brianna Taylor. And then uh, another uh, individual is asking about, um, you mentioned what was sort of missing in your, your education growing up and um, what, how do you think your work can be used more in contemporary education? And then what, what's next for you? So yes, I am planning on doing a piece on Brianna Taylor. Um, however, I don't like to force the imagery. The imagery has to come to me. So I've been thinking about it, it's present in my mind and it's almost there. So when um, Sandra Bland was first found dead, my sister was like, oh, you have to do a piece on this. And I was like, I can't, it's like not coming to me yet. And then like a month or so later, the idea came to me. Um, and then the second part of your question. Um, so uh, what's, what's next? Um, oh, and next. then speaking to, um, speaking to how your work could be used in contemporary education. So um, I have had many teachers um, and students actually from all over the world contact me. So there was a teacher in Germany, I think, who asked if they could use my images, a teacher in Boston and a student in Korea who asked if she could use my image, images because I was her um, inspiration artist. And then I would love for my work to be included in more libraries. So I just completed recently completed a commission of John Lewis for John Lewis High School, and that's permanently on display in their library. Um, but with this piece, Birth of a Nation, it's, so my last body of work I call Social Memorials, and I am gonna do a Breonna Taylor in that series. This new series um, is called Systematic Racism, and I wanna focus more on historical events and doing you know, my due diligence of research on history of those events. So events that, that many black children never know about or have never heard of. And, and, then, um, and then in February, on February 10th, I will be a um, guest lecturer for Johnson and Johnson. They are sponsoring a black history month for artists. So I think I'm going to be one of three artists speaking on February 10th. So that will be on my Instagram. And, and what is your Instagram uh, handle if, if folks would like to follow you? Um, it's just at Justine Fisher. Excellent. Do you have time for another? Oh. We've got Victoria back. Oh, All right. She has time. If Justine has time, God, go yes. for it. <laughs> we, I, I feel like you've, you've opened, um, you know, you, there's so many things that we could talk about. We could have you here all night. <laughs> um, um, but uh, um, let me see if, uh, um, well, I think, I, so, so I'll, I'll wrap us up with this question. Um, just thinking, and, and you might have answered this, my apologies, my internet connection, despite being hardwired in, um, cut out for a minute, but I'm curious um, how you see, and this, this is a question that came up um, for, from some of our um, attendees, um, how you see January 6th and the insurrection and recent events um, influencing what, you, uh, what you create next, um, will that have an influence or is it too it, soon to tell? No, it will definitely have an influence because I want, I want more people to be aware of what, what black people have feared our entire lives basically. So I think January 6th was important to happen because it, it, it made it made white people more aware of like, wow, this does exist. And there are people out there who have these beliefs. And I, I had like, there are people who are still in shock about this. And, you know, I talked to my black friends who were like, no, I wasn't surprised. No, no, none of us were surprised. We're just like, yeah, yeah, 
another day, you know, it's uh, so, but I think that um, it's going to happen more. Um, there was just a notice put out by Homeland Security about future attacks coming and, you know, that when our previous president says this is just the beginning, you know, everything is, it's really not even a dog whistle anymore. It's like, oh, get ready, you know, proud boys, stand back and stand by because we're, we're coming, we're going to rally up. So it's going to be interesting because, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of good out there and people just have to remember that and people have to stay positive, but also be aware of the evil that exists everywhere and that people are trying to bring more to the surface or make uh, a more commonplace or accepted.